Well, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was enjoying a good local brew after work, uh, talking with a friend of mine who is part of New Life. Uh, we've been in a men's group together. He shared with me something that both inspired and humbled me. Uh, he told me that after the first uh, message of this series, that he and his wife went home, and she said very enthusiastically that she doesn't want to be a Christian anymore. She wants to be a disciple. And I thought, Wow. Uh, and if you've missed any of the messages thus far, that might be somewhere between confusing and alarming. So you need to go ahead and get online and watch or listen to what you've missed because we've been addressing the fact that there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. And the thing that drove me to do this series is the fact that millions are abandoning or avoiding Christianity, especially in America. And, and, and while, yes, there has forever been a percentage of men and women and young people who have kept God at an arm's distance because they don't want anyone or any God telling them what to do or not do. That's not who I'm referring to. I'm referring to the millions of people who are walking away from or rejecting the God of Jesus because of what we call Christianity, a religion that you can define any way that you want and that has a huge, huge closet filled with centuries worth of skeletons. That while Many amazing acts of compassion and justice have been done in the name of Christianity, and some of the greatest educational and scientific advancements have been accomplished under the banner of Christianity. Many other things into present day have also been done under the banner of Christianity. Uh, crusades, genocides, ethnic cleansings, witch trials, heresy trials, drownings, hangings, burning at the stake, wars, slavery, the KKK, racism, sexism, the sexual abuse of children, and all these and more are also part of our history. And we can't just deny that or ignore it. We have to take the whole thing. And just within the past decade, let alone my, in my lifetime, when I look at the wrongs and injustices and even atrocities perpetrated under the banner of Christianity or by so-called Christians, it makes all the sense in the world to me why so many are abandoning or rejecting Christianity. And I, for one, as shocking as it may sound, am glad because Jesus didn't come to introduce Christianity into the world. He came to introduce something far, far better. Jesus came to introduce to us the one true God whom he introduced as Heavenly Father to help us to know him and to know him intimately and to reconcile us to him. And Jesus made it clear that to follow, to put our trust in him would not only lead us to God, but would somehow allow us to play a role in bringing his kingdom to earth, an existence where Compassion and mercy and justice and love rule the day. But that is not what Christians are primarily known for in our current generation. But part of the problem is that we've been talking about the term Christian. We've talked about the fact that Jesus never referred to his followers as Christians. And unfortunately, much of the Western world has settled for Christian. And the reason why is because you can make Christian anything you want it to mean. Because it's not defined in scriptures. It's only used three times. It was used by outsiders to describe followers of Jesus. But Jesus actually gave his followers a brand or a label, disciple. And they took that brand and that label seriously. And we know that to be true. Because when you visit Rome today, on top of just about every single building, you find a cross. 
crosses in the emperor's gate, the slave gate, at the Roman Colosseum, everywhere you go in the city of Rome are crosses. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, because if we could go back in time to about 64 to 65 AD, Nero has just burned the city of Rome. He needs a scapegoat to blame it, uh, blame it on. So he decides to blame it on this Jewish knockoff cult of, uh, from Palestine called the Christians. And so he announces that the Christians burned the city of Rome. And he sends henchmen all throughout the city to round up Christians. And, as, uh, and he has this thing called Nero's Circus. It was basically an arena. And he begins burning Christians alive as human torches. He begins feeding them to lions, making sport of them. And imagine if for a moment we could go back to about 64 to 65 AD when all the this is going on, and outside the city of Rome, we were to visit a farm, and behind the farmhouse is a barn, and in the back of this barn huddles three Christian families who have fled Rome. They know they'll never be able to go back. They saw friends and family members violently hauled off, never to be seen from or heard from again. They've lost everything they've had. There's a bounty on their heads. People would be paid for bringing them in so that they might be burned to death or fed to the lions. And if we were to sit down on the straw with these frightened families, with the children crying, with the men and the women terrified, and we were to say to them, it's, it's going to be okay, that one day, one day the city of Rome will be adorned with crosses everywhere. Crosses will be affixed everywhere, from buildings to walls to highways to signs to artwork, these crosses, and they will not represent Rome or even crucifixion. These crosses will represent one single crucifixion, the crucifixion of a Jewish carpenter, the very man that you worship, Jesus Christ, your Lord. And, 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 and this movement that you're part of, it's going to become so well-known, so huge and internationally known that one day, this very city that you fled from, the epicenter of persecution, will one day become the epicenter of faith, representing, uh, with crosses, representing the memory of Jesus Christ, your Lord. More than any city in any of the world. And one day, the Colosseum where your friends and family have died and all those temples that they have fled, they will be nothing more than tourist attractions. And instead of an arena, there will be a cathedral, an incredible cathedral built in the memory of Peter, the fisherman, the leader of this movement that you call The Way, that will one day become known as Christianity. Can you imagine? And they would have looked at you like you were crazy. They would have said, no, Rome is forever. I mean, we believe in Jesus. We believe that he's the risen Savior, but his movement is small. We are only one of a several dozen. There is no way in the world that Rome will ever turn and surrender to this fledgling movement that we call the way. Yet within 300 years, which historically speaking is not a long time, that's exactly what happened. There are crosses everywhere. How did that happen? It happened because Jesus' followers would not simply be Christians. It happened because the followers of Jesus embraced and submitted to the teachings of Jesus. They took seriously the label and the brand that he gave them. And over time, it's a historical fact, they changed the world. And if they could do it, so can we. But see, when I say that, I don't think you really believe me. I'm not sure that it stirs something in your heart and in your gut 
like it does mine. But I couldn't be more serious. Listen, a group about the size of ours changed the world. It can be done again. It can be done in our lifetime. With God's help, we have the opportunity of a lifetime to make a lasting difference in this world and for the sake of the next generation to begin to replace Christianity with something far, far better. But to do that, we have to return to the forgotten way. I want to read to you the speech from, of, of Jesus from Matthew chapter 5 that got the whole thing going. This was early in Jesus' ministry, and most of you have heard these words before, but I want to pitch it in a different context. So hundreds, maybe thousands have gathered, and Jesus realizes this is the moment to lay the groundwork to the foundation, to introduce to this group of people the value system, the worldview, and the habits, the behaviors that are going to turn the world upside down. Here's where it all began, Matthew 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, which is why we call it the Sermon on the Mount, and he sat down. His disciples, because that's what he called his followers, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And here is the revolutionary, world-changing, shut-down-the-Roman-Empire speech that Jesus gave. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There you go. And it gets stronger. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's like, what? Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It's like, Okay, Jesus, time out. Really? Do, do you know what's going on in our world? Do you know anything about Rome? The meek aren't going to inherit anything. We can't even control our own land or our own nation. He, he goes on, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness instead of hungry and thirsting for everything culture drives us to, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. It's like, okay, Jesus, I don't, I don't think you understand. Do you really think we're going to be able to retake our world, our land, and our nation from the brutality of Rome through peacekeeping? That doesn't even make sense. Might and strength, that is what is required. Peacemaking, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of things about you, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, why aren't you clapping and cheering? I think the crowd was just like you. I think it was just silent. Somebody looks over like, maybe he'll do a miracle or something. I don't know, because this, this isn't going anywhere. I mean, this is, is the start of something new? Okay, Jesus, before you go on, let me do a quick review. So we are poor, sad, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, peaceful, persecuted, insulted people waiting for a reward in heaven. Is that who we are? And you think anything of substance can come from this? And yet 300 years later, the message of Jesus is everywhere. 
But in the moment, people, they simply wouldn't have been able to process it. Just like we have difficulty processing that somehow a group this size could change the world again. So Jesus decides, let me, let me give you two word pictures that tell you who you are. You are all these other things. But let me put it in practical terms. Now, again, for some of you, you've heard these words maybe even hundreds of times, but you probably missed it. And we cannot miss this. So please pay close attention because if you're a Jesus follower, he's talking directly to you and to me. His, his next phrase is, you are the salt of the earth. If you want to be my follower, that is who and what you are. You are the salt of the earth. Now, for us in 21st century, especially in America, salt is a seasoning, right? It's something my wife wants me to cut back on. I'm not, because I'm stubborn. So, but for us, it's a seasoning. But for them, in the first century, they didn't have refrigeration. This is a preservative. And a preservative is just simply this. It's a substance that's used to preserve foodstuffs, wood, and other materials against decay. So salt is added to prevent decomposition, especially to food, because when things de decompose, they rot. And many of those things stink. And if it's food and you eat it, it could kill you. So Jesus was saying to his audience what he's saying to us today. You are the preservative of the earth. You. You. And if you don't do your part to preserve, the earth, culture, decays. It rots. If you don't preserve, culture rots. And things are going to go in a very, very negative way. And again, he was speaking into a world that we can't even begin to imagine, where again... Might made right. The biggest army, that is how right was determined. When it came to moral or ethical issues, it was who had the longest sword, who has the most might. We have to remember, this is a world in which women had no rights. Children had fewer rights. The gods were not loving. Compassion, mercy, generosity, these were not considered virtues. It was considered for the weak. It's a world we can't imagine. The only way you can imagine it is to actually visit some of these other countries that still operate by that worldview. What we can't fully appreciate in the Western world, especially in America, it is that much of what we assume as common human decency is not common. It was learned we still reflect a Judeo-Christian ethic that goes deep into our culture, as imperfect as it is. It's not how Americans are. It's how we have learned to be. That we still reflect these fundamental values that Jesus taught that eventually went all the way around the world and transformed cultures everywhere. Because, of course, in 2023, a woman shouldn't be treated any less than a man. But there were many times in this country where that was not the case. Yet somehow instinctively, intuitively, we knew there's something wrong with that. And a group, a remnant, worked to fix that. And intuitively, there was a remnant that knew a person should not have ownership of another person. That there's something wrong about that. And eventually the national conscious, consciousness caught up with that teaching and that truth. And we believe that children are precious, but why? Why do we think children are precious when in other cultures, children aren't precious at all? They're considered a liability. 
Why do we think when someone is generous and they give to help those who are in need, why do we say that's good instead of weak? You understand that today there are cultures and religions where actually that's considered a bad thing because you're messing with someone's karma. Why do we applaud mercy and applaud the person that risked their life and their income for the sake of those who are in need? Why do we think that's good? It's not human nature. It's not common decency. It's a reflection of a worldview that ultimately came from the salty teachings of Jesus and the first century disciples who grabbed onto it and they believed it. We can't fully appreciate this, but we benefit every single day from elements of a forgotten way worldview that is not self-evident. It's based on a faith system that traces its roots back to a mountainside on a, in a country on the other side of the world in the first century, one that says men and women and children, no matter their race, their language they speak, no matter what side of the border they live on, they have value that men and women and children were somehow created in the image of God, and that is not intuitive and it is not self-evident. We hear of slavery in other countries or our children are widely trafficked and people sold and we think, how can anyone treat another human this way? It's simple. They don't see the world the way you see the world. And the reason they don't see the world the way you see it is because you've been taught to see the world the way that you do. That somehow through Jesus we learn that God actually loves us. And if he loves you and if he loves me and he created us, suddenly I have value and worth and you have value and worth. And how I treat you matters and how you treat me matters. And all that preserves a life that is truly life. So when Jesus gathered with his disciples, he said, By this one thing, all people will know you are my follower follower, by how you love, how you treat, how you appreciate, how you go out of your way to care for one another, to care for others in action. Not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, but sacrificial, unconditional love, faith, and action. And Jesus said, if you will allow it, it's going to take hold. It's going to impact the whole world, the, the earth. And it did. And he meant it. You were the salt the preservers of the earth, and not only that, you are the light of the world. To which, if we're honest, for those of us that would identify as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, we would say, I don't want to be the light of the world. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us who are Christians, we became Christians, honestly, because we just wanted to go to heaven when we die, right? I mean, for most of us, let's just be real for a moment. We feel like we've got enough going on in our little, overloaded, complex, demanding lives. We don't want to be salt and light. Like, I prayed. I prayed that prayer. I prayed the magic prayer, so I've got heaven when I die. Now, I just want to get my diploma. I just want to get my degree. I want to get a job. I want to get a better job. I want to get a house. I want to get a nice house. I want to find a husband, find a wife. I just want to have a family, raise a family, learn some Bible verses, learn, sing some songs, and go to heaven when, we, when I die. I mean, most Christians in America just want to show up on Sunday, have community, hang out with a few friends, and go to heaven when they die. And I kind of get it. Sometimes we're just tired. But Jesus would say, like, I, I don't know who taught you that. But my followers, my disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And to the group of people gathered that day, the world was fall was small. I mean, what you need to realize is people in that culture rarely traveled more than 15 miles from their home. 
Like there were continents that they had no idea about. They had no idea about North and South America. There were continents that had not been discovered by some people, that ones that now have churches on them. Why? Because he was serious. And those disciples took him seriously. Jesus continued, a town placed on a hill. Now, your Bible translation may have the word built, but the Greek word literally is placed. It's intentional. A city placed on a hill cannot be hidden. See, in that part of the world, my wife and I, we we were blessed a few years to go to this part of the world. A lot of it's flat. And there are no trees or shrubs. There's only shrubs. And so towns are built on hills and they're built out of white limestone. So in, in the daylight, the sun reflects and you can see them for miles and miles. And then at night, they light their oil lamps. And again, they can be seen for miles around. And Jesus says, just as a city or town that is placed on a hill can't be hidden. If you're my follower, if you're my disciple, then you have been intentionally placed You are like an intentionally, strategically placed city or town to which, again, we go, listen, I am not strategically placed. I just moved here for school or I just moved here for a job or I was transferred here from Seattle or California or the East Coast or another country. I didn't even want to come to Wichita or I lost my job and now I'm stuck in this stupid, flat, windy, pollen-filled city where half the roads are under construction year-round. I'm not strategically placed. I'm just a wanderer trying to get home, and this city is holding me hostage. Or I went to college here of dreaming of a specific career, uh, you know, something else, something with mountains or something with oceans and scenery. I've never intended to be doing what I'm doing or where I'm doing it. Or it, I was born here. I mean, mom and dad, they had a special night. Nine months later, here I am, wet and crying, and I just, I just happen to be here. See, it's just random. I'm not strategically placed. And Jesus would say, it may seem random to you, but it's not. You have been strategically placed as a light, like a city. He went on, neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on the stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, as a city placed on the hill, as a light placed on a stand, let your light shine before others. Now, here's how we read that in America. Let your light shine before others means that they may see your good church attendance and say, man, he or she is such a great Christian. That they may see your religious post on social media and go, wow, they're such a great Christian. No, Jesus said, like a city on a hill can't be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He's not saying, I want you to live a life of good deeds so that others go, wow, he's such a nice guy. She's so great. They're so awesome. No, he's saying that they should see you living the kind of good deeds that makes them go, who's that generous? Like, who's that compassionate? Who does that? I mean, I got sick or my spouse got sick. Like they barely even know me and they brought me meals. Or my husband got deployed and they just came over and mowed my yard. Or they're busy people and yet I watch them invest in the lives of children that aren't even their own children. Or I know this guy I work for. I work for this guy. He's a Christian and I messed up at work and he called me into his office and I was sure he was going to fire me. Instead, he sat me down and said, you know, you really screwed up. You cost this, co- this company a lot of money, and this might make you a little uncomfortable, but as you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I believe in second chances. 
I'm going to give you a second chance. And they walk out of the office going like, I don't know about that Christian part. He should have fired me, but, or I'm a struggling college student, or I lost my job. And these neighbors of mine or these church people, I know they're church people because I see them leave and come back on Sunday and they found out about my situation. They showed up at my house. They gave me like a $200 Dylan's gift card and offered to help if I needed more help. Or, and then the guy said he offered to help network and find me a job. And it's just, who does that? And Jesus says, I, I want your good deeds to be so extraordinary and your light so bright that it just outshines everybody else. And they go, what's up with you? And then, when it's appropriate, you connect the dots and you tell them to connect the dots so they begin to give credit for the good deeds not to you, but to your Father in heaven. So here's the question that only you could answer. This isn't me or anyone else judging you. It's just a question only you can answer if you're a Jesus follower. If you were to examine and compare the deeds you do for others compared to the deeds that you do for yourself, would the evidence suggest that you're passionate about being the salt and light that Jesus said that his followers would be? Or would the evidence suggest that you're just happy to be going to heaven when you die? And FYI, because you're like me, most of you, you're not going to like the answer. But you need to know you're not alone. See, there's a reason I have tattooed on my arm the question, what does love require of me? In light of what Jesus has done for me, what does love require of me? Because I'm convinced that I'm the most selfish, self-centered person that I know. I am often frustrated at the level of selfishness that I can feel and display, and it's a constant battle. In fact, I thank God every day for my amazing wife, who is one of the most selfless people I know, and for all the ways that God has used her and continues to make me a better man, as, as recently as last night. Uh, yesterday, I had worked hard on projects around the house all day long. I was just looking forward. It was about three in the afternoon. I was just almost done. I'm so ready to just shower, get on the couch, put something on Netflix. And she had the audacity to suggest that we invite another couple. And she's an introvert. Okay, she's not supposed to do this. We're supposed to invite this other couple because of what's going on in their lives, what it would mean to them, and I had a bad attitude about it. Like, I don't want to. And she just so naturally shows unconditional, sacrificial love. It's so frustrating. So salty, so lighty. Jesus said, let me, not culture, not your inner appetites, let me. God Nabod tell you who you are. You are salt. You are light. You, you've got this. And the first century followers of Jesus, they got this. These first century followers would go down to the river and collect children that had been discarded as unwanted and would take them into their homes even though they were already struggling to take care of the kids they already had. When, when plagues would break out in these towns and villages and everyone else would flee, the Christians would stay behind to care for those who were sick and weather the plague even though it cost some of them their lives. And people were going, what's wrong with these people? What's, what's up with these people? 
And you, what, you know what else they noticed? They noticed Jesus' followers weren't afraid to die. They weren't afraid of death. Uh, you understand, the first century, when they decided he has risen, I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus, for most of them, that meant complete excommunication from their families. And for some, it was worse. They would be persecuted. They would be brought before religious and government leaders in a culture of violence, in a culture where they were imprisoned, they were beaten, they were tortured, they were stoned to death, they had oil poured over them, and then they were used to be candles to light the emperor's gardens. And when this happened, they didn't curse, they didn't beg for their lives, they didn't threaten. Rather, they expressed love and mercy, and they faced death with grace and courage much like the one they followed did when the Romans were pounding the nails into his hands and his feet and he prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. It's like these people, they know something that I don't about the other side and they lived their lives in such a way that this pagan Greek Roman community began to connect the dots and just just a few hundred years later, it turned the entire world upside down, not because of good preaching and teaching, but because of powerful living. Men, women, and young people who took seriously Jesus' call to be salt and light, and in our somewhat chaotic, broken, crazy 21st century world, and in a country that is so divided with increasing hostilities, here's what I think Jesus would say to us today. Don't settle Christian. Be salt, be light. Or if you prefer, be salty, be lit. <laughs> In a world where millions are struggling with loneliness and depression and anxiety, be salt and be light. In a world where millions are facing houselessness, mental illness, tragedy, or that are fleeing their home country, seeking everything from refuge to a more hopeful future for their family. Be salt and be light to where people pay attention and live and love with a very different kind of life and love. And every once in a while, speak up boldly, but humbly, and confront some things and say, I don't know that this is a great idea. And every once in a while, maybe you take someone to coffee and go, I love you too much to not tell you the truth, and I just got to speak into this and get in your business. But be a preserver and be a light through your love and through your lifestyle that points, points the way. Because let me turn it around. For those of you uh, to, to just help you truly understand the significance. For those of you that say, I'm, I'm Christian, I'm a Jesus follower, but now you're afraid to use Christian. I'm sorry that I took that from you, but not really. Uh, whatever you want to call yourself. But for you, as you think about your own life, here's what I know about you. That you're a follower because somebody was salt and life in, light in your life. Maybe it was your parents. Maybe it was your grandparents. Maybe it was a fellow student. Maybe it was a teacher or a friend or a co-worker, but someone was salt and light in their life, maybe when you were young, maybe before you were even born, but then down the road, your life intersected with your, theirs, and maybe they didn't feel, odds are they didn't feel like they were a strategically placed light in your life, like a city on a hill in your home or your school or your job or living next door. They were just trying to be what they thought God was calling them to be, and you'd say, for you, no, it was providential. God put them in my life. But they didn't feel that way. You, 
You see, some of you, you're so grateful for the man or the woman or the people or that family or the group that God put in your life that they were a salt or light. Or maybe uh, in your husband's wife or your life or your wife's life before you two even met or after you got married. Or for those of you, you you've got adult children and you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and said, God, they're not going to listen to me, but maybe they'll listen to someone else. And God listened to your prayers and brought someone else into their life and they listened. And they didn't think of themselves as a city on a hill or salt. That's exactly what they were. And for some of you, you're so grateful for the people that influenced you or your children or someone you love in a positive way. People who did not think of themselves as a strategically placed individual, but from your perspective, they were. God brought those neighbors, that individual, that coworker. I feel like God brought that person and put them in the life of the person that I love. Why? Because from our perspective as receivers, it seems providential. But we don't think of ourselves that way. But listen to me. If you are a Jesus follower, if you are a disciple, it is time to return to the forgotten way. It's time to change your way of thinking and to what you see in the mirror, to embrace that salt works even when you don't see it working or understand how it works. That light always lights the way even though you may not understand or see. Salt always preserves and light always shows the way. And you might say, Chad, you know where I work, I can't really talk about religious things. And you're in an office, you're in middle management, maybe it's the educational setting that you're in, or you're a receptionist, you may own the company, you're a leader. If you're a Jesus follower, Jesus would say to you today, whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, I have placed you there. You are the salt of that environment. You are the light of that environment. So let your good deeds, let your kindness, let your work ethic be so extraordinary that the people around you begin to connect the dots to your, from your extraordinary deeds. And then as you share openly, humbly, boldly, that you are a follower of me, and then when you see the chance to bless or serve someone, even if it's in the smallest way, just do it. Go out of your way and do it and bless them, even if you don't feel like they deserve it. Because you have no idea who's watching. You have no idea who's around you right now that's on the verge of a breakthrough. I really want to say that again. You have no idea who's watching you right now that's on the verge of a breakthrough, what they're watching with your salty life and you being a light. You may never know the end of their story or how your interactions impact them in the long run. But here's what you can be confident of. Salt always preserves and the light always shows the way or points forward. It has the potential to change everything. So let's not settle for Christian. And let's return to the forgotten way to be what Jesus called us to be. I want to invite the band to come on up. They've got a great song they're going to lead us through, but just want you to know to help us even more with this next week, we're going to go deep. We're going to address the idea. Some of you have heard the term uh, hate the sin, love the sinner. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about how... To, so how does the grace of God and I forgive you and I don't hold you accountable and how does truth? You are accountable. There is truth. Like how, how does that work? How does that all go together? And so how do you possibly do both? So this is going to be huge. So don't miss next week. Let me pray for us. Father, you, um, I'm so grateful 
for the texts that we have that have made it through all these centuries, for the early disciples that risked everything to write these down, and for the followers that risked their lives even possessing copies of these texts. Those that during the Reformation who lost their lives to translate it into languages we could understand. Father, we're, as your kids, we are a mess. <laughs> We've got a messy history. But I pray, Father, that in our day and in our time, you would do something new. You would do something extraordinary. That you would, Father, do through us what we see that you did through those first and early followers. And I pray, Father, that you would accomplish through us something extraordinary to not only restore a new faith in you, a renewed faith in your son in our day, but that we would begin to shape something so much better that this next generation that's coming up behind us, they'll see that it is worth carrying into the next generation and even building on and make it better so that we would truly be the salt and the light that you called us to be. Father, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.